Good evening. Once again, glad to have you all here. Uh, please open in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 6, and I will read the Lord's Prayer out in its fullness to us one last time to close the summer. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is God's Word. Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful study that we've had this summer. I pray that each and every one of us would learn to prize this prayer more closely to our souls because of this study. Lord, how wonderful it is that you have condescended to our level to give us something so simple and yet something so profound. I pray that as we close this evening, we may learn much. Give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Listen to the way that these two saints in the New Testament end their prayers. I'm going to read two passages for us. And just listen to how Paul and Jude end their prayers. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a pretty great ending to a prayer. Now listen to how Jude ends a prayer at the very end of the book of Jude. He's, Jude, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. How do you end your prayers? How do you end your prayers when you pray? If you're like me, sometimes, do you just say a quick, uh, in Jesus' name, amen, and, you know, go to sleep? Or maybe you, it's hard to even tell if you ended your prayers because you fell asleep. I remember sometimes when my parents would have us pray around the dinner table growing up, it was almost like we would speed up when we came to the end. Like, a, in Jesus' name, amen. Like it was a competition of how fast you can finish. No matter where you're at in your prayers li prayer life, we all have room to grow in how we close our prayers. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the typical in Jesus' name, amen, but that doesn't mean that you don't have much to learn. It's a beautiful thing for us to conclude our prayers with a Godward direction, tying the bow, if you will, on our petition to our Heavenly Father. And the end of this Lord's Prayer definitely ends with a beautiful upward note where we guide ourselves back to the throne of our Heavenly Father. So here's how we're going to handle tonight. First, I'm going to deal with an initial large question, and then, once we actually get to the text, we're going to walk through three important lessons that we learn from the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. So here's the initial question. Why is this conclusion sometimes not in your Bible? Why is this conclusion sometimes not in your Bible? Perhaps you've noticed this before. You get to this part in the Sermon on the Mount, and depending on your translation, you're like, wait a second. I've always 
ended the prayer with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, but it's not there. So if you read from the ESV, like myself, or the NIV, you'll find that the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer is often in a footnote. If you're reading from the NASB, it's in brackets. Or if you're reading in the King James Version or the New King James Version, it's just there. Why is this the case? I want to explain the reason for this, but I also want to encourage you how reliable our Bibles are. Some people, when dealing with issues like this, can leave thinking that the issue of our Bibles is kind of up in the air. And that's not the case. So I want to do both of those things. Explain, but also encourage. So to put it simply, this is not in, this conclusion is not in many translations because the earliest manuscripts of the scriptures that we have do not contain it. The earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew do not have the conclusion to this prayer in it. Now the conclusion to this prayer is found within an early apostolic document called the Didache, which was circulated in the second century. It's also um, in some fuller manuscripts that come towards like the 5th or the 6th century. But the earliest entire manuscripts of the New Testament that we have that come from the 3rd or 4th century do not have the conclusion here. And because of this, many scholars have made the decision and concluded that this most likely was not a part of the document that Matthew himself wrote. And these would be the people who were the translators for the ESV or the NIV. In my study, I tend to agree with their conclusions, which is I personally do all my reading from the ESV, and our church uses both the ESV and the NASB. So some smart people disagree with this, though, and those would be the translators for um, translations like the New King James Version, which is why they include it. They would say that these earlier manuscripts were a corruption of the original. So what do we do with this? Let me make one thing clear. Every evangelical scholar of the Bible nowadays agrees that the Holy Bible is by far the most well-attested document in antiquity, bar none. Let me explain. Uh, most of you, when you were in high school, probably learned in your history class about Julius Caesar. Did you not? The great emperor of Rome. How do we know what happened during the life of Julius Caesar? We know about the life of Julius Caesar through his memoirs, the Gallic Wars, through the speeches of the great orator Cicero, and then through a f three other historians. Combined through those five sources, there are only 12 manuscripts that exist. Only 12. And yet it is treated as undeniable historical fact. And those 12 manuscripts were written 900 years after Julius Caesar died. Perhaps they came from a longer tradition, but that's just the situation. So to paint for you a picture how reliable your Bible is, we have almost 6,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Almost 6,000, and that ranges from tiny fragments that people have found off of like sarcophagi in Egypt to full uh, books that have been found in monasteries in the Middle East. Just compare that in your mind. 6,000 to twelve. Truly, the Bible that you have in your house, most likely, maybe you even have a dozen Bibles, is a scientific, scientific and a historical wonder how reliable it is. And I want you to keep that in your mind as we think about this one little issue.
in the Lord's Prayer. So if this is true, if this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, should we stop reciting the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? It's a fair question. People have asked this. I think absolutely not. Here's why. Even if these scholars are correct, and the conclusion was not in the original manuscripts, which I tend to agree with, our God has still providentially kept his word throughout all of history. Let me read what our own Westminster Confession has to say about this in the section about the scriptures. It says that the Bible was immediately inspired by God, but not only that, by his singular care and providence, the Bible was kept pure in all ages and therefore is authentic. So basically, it's not like we only have the Bible in his correct form now. No, God has always given his people the word that they need throughout all of time through his Holy Spirit. A second reason why we should keep this conclusion is because it's, it's very scriptural. If you were listening to the call to worship, you probably noticed some similarities. This passage where David is praying in 1 Chronicles 29 has all, all of the same phrases. David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the victory and the majesty and the might and the glory. So it's very similar. It's not like this is not scriptural. So even if the translators were right and this conclusion was not in the earliest manuscripts, for the sake of tradition, beauty, and honoring our past fathers in the faith, it should stay in our church liturgy. So I hope that's an encouraging answer to a question like this, because I've, I've talked with some people, especially when I was in my undergraduate degree, who would see issues, things like this, and just stop reading their Bible because they thought they couldn't trust it, which is ridiculous. Your Bible is the most trustworthy document on planet Earth. Okay, so that's out of the way. Let's actually get to the text. Three main points as we go through the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Point number one. God, not you, is the basis of your prayers. God, not you, is the basis of your prayers. Look at it. Look at how it starts. It starts with the little word for. We could even say because or here's why. It's giving the reasons why you should pray this prayer. And what is the, the next word after that? It's not for, I had a wonderful day and read my Bible really well this week. It's not for, Lord, I was a great church attender and have fulfilled all of my necessary duties as a family member this week. No, the first word is for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The very act of prayer is something that cannot happen apart from God's help. We are told in this conclusion to pray to God for what God promises because of what God has done. I've even put it this way. Do you know that praying in and of itself is a Trinitarian act? When you pray, Jesus is taking your prayers to the foot of God the Father's throne through the power of the Spirit. What a blessing that is. This is why we so often pray in Jesus' name. Because me in and of myself and you in and of yourself do not have the authority to waltz into God's throne room and say, Father, hear me. But you're not just yourself. You belong body and soul to Jesus. And he takes your prayers. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. 
Listen to these two passages that describe the blessing that we have of access to our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 3.12 says, In Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And listen to Hebrews 4.16. Since Jesus is our high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Imagine if your prayers were based upon you. Imagine if the efficacy of your prayers was based upon how you're doing. At best, they would be very inconsistent. And at worst, God the Father would never hear them. So it is such good news that we can end this prayer and say, for yours is the glory and the power forever. Listen to the Westminster Lodger Catechism, question 196. This is the answer that it says for the end of the Lord's Prayer. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves, but only from God. I love the phrasing that Martin Luther has in his catechism about this as well. He says, This you can hold up to him, the conclusion, you can hold up to God and say, I come to you, dear Father, and pray not of my own accord or because of my worthiness, but because of your commandment and promise which cannot fail or deceive me. So these words should be a great comfort to us. Think of the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Do you remember that moment in the story where Esther knows about the plot that Mordecai is conjuring? And she's like, oh, I need to go to the king and tell him. And then, uh, sorry, Haman, my bad. Haman is making the plot and Mordecai says, you need to go talk to the king. And how does Esther respond? She's terrified. She's like, if anyone goes into the king's chamber unannounced, they're dead. Only if he brings forth his scepter and welcomes you in can I come there and be safe. And she's terrified and she does it anyway. Think of prayer like this. Prayer is knowing that I can step foot into the sanctuary of God at any moment. No matter how bad my day was. No matter how sinful I have been. Because it is actually Jesus going into his presence on my behalf. In Christ, the scepter of the king is always welcoming you in. So God, not you, is the basis of your prayers. Number two, this conclusion guides us to finish our prayers with praise, with more worship, <laughs> which is awesome because that's how we began this prayer. Do you remember the first petition? Hallowed be your name. And then this prayer beautifully ends with, God, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory this is what the Heidelberg Catechism has to say about this conclusion. It says, We have made all these petitions of you, God, because as our all-powerful king, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. So let's look at the three things, the three ways that this conclusion gives praise to God at the end of the prayer. First, it says, Lord, for yours is the kingdom. The kingdom. If you were uh, here when Josiah taught, you'd be recollecting, oh, this isn't the first time that the kingdom has been mentioned in the prayers. But why should this be a reason to make us want to pray more? 
Here's why. The eternal kingdom of God, which we heard Josiah teach on, is an absolute surety. Jesus will return. He will reign as far as the sun stretches. That is a promise. And because it is a sure truth, that should guide you to pray more. Hebrews 12, 28 says this, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, America can be shaken. Rome was shaken. Every great empire in history has been shaken. But the kingdom that, that Jesus will bring when he returns will never fall. And that should guide us to want to pray all the more. Let's look at the second one. Not only is God's have the kingdom, it also says yours is the power. Yours is the power. Why should God's power guide you to pray more? We serve a powerful God, and a lot of times I can forget that. And I'm sure in the busyness of your lives, you can struggle to remember that as well. But just think with me, all through the Bible, think of some of the amazing things that our God has done. He created the universe by the word of his power. Abraham and Sarah, two people well beyond the, the years of bearing children, had a child. That's amazing. When the Israelites were going to the promised land, an entire sea was parted so that they could cross on dry land. That's amazing. The sun stopped its course in the middle of the day so that Joshua could finish defeating the enemies of the Lord. Hundreds of historical predictions of the rising and fallings of nations came perfectly true. When Jesus was on earth, blind men were healed and corpses were raised to walk again. And more importantly, if you're here and you believe in Jesus, your dead heart has been made to believe. We, we serve a powerful God. I, I love the thing that the Lord says to Abraham when he comes and says, this time next year I will come back and Sarah will have a child. He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No, we serve a powerful God. And I can tell you, sometimes I can struggle with, sometimes I can limit the scope of my prayers too much. Because deep in the back of my mind, I'm afraid of getting disappointed. And my petitions and what I ask can kind of reflect that, like I'm a little skittish. I'm not trusting in God's power when I do that. Well, one thing, actually, Sarah and I have been trying to do as of late when we pray together is to acknowledge God's ability to do the very thing that we want. Whether or not he does it is in his camp. But in your prayers, you should acknowledge, God, you are able to do this thing. Like that. It would be a piece of cake to you. And I believe that you are able to do it. So I hope that your prayers would be filled with an, a comprehension of how powerful your God is. And I hope that we would grow in making bold asks of God. Trusting in his might and his power. And not just small, everyday asks. All prayers are important. But do you trust in the Lord's power in your prayer? Perhaps some of you, even this week, going into the school year, are in a situation where you're thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this. I have no idea, Lord, how you're going to make me get to the other side of this difficulty, this struggle. 
I have no idea. Those are the moments where we need to finish our prayers on God's power. So let's look at the, it also says, yours is the glory. Why should the glory of God give you a greater reason to pray? First of all, do you realize that it gives your father pleasure and glory when you pray to him? I don't know about you, but my mind is constantly buzzing with about 30,000 different things, and it all meshes together, and most of the time, whatever's going on in my brain does not make any sense. <laughs> but do you realize when you set that aside for a moment and devote your entire body and mind to asking questions of God, do you realize how much pleasure that brings him? How much glory that shows your father? It's almost like you're shouting to the world, God wins. There is victory in my Lord. Listen to this verse from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have you ever been out on a boat or maybe a cruise? Far enough out to shore that you look around you and you can't see anything but water. That's what it will be like with the apprehension of God's glory someday. And because that is true and sure, it should guide us to want to pray all the more. It's almost like right now your prayer is adding a drop in the ocean of God's glory that will cover the face of the earth someday. So you should end your prayers with praises to God. And I want to encourage you, especially attach those attributes of God which match best to your petitions. Here's what I mean. Perhaps you're praying to God a prayer of confession for sin. You did something that you know you shouldn't have done, or you didn't do something you know you should have done. End your prayer with an acknowledgement of God's grace. Lord, you are merciful, and I thank you for that. Perhaps you're asking for help. End with his power. Maybe you're thankful. End with his glory. Perhaps you're just in that crazy situation that I mentioned and you just have no idea how a thing's going to work out. End with praising the Lord that he's your helper in every distress. So you should, you and I should seek to end our prayers with praise like Jesus shows. So last point, number three, you and I should end our prayers with amen. We should end our prayers with amen. I'm guessing you already do this. So this is... This is a checkbox, a gimme. But just because you do it, maybe even subconsciously, doesn't mean you shouldn't think about it a little bit more. This uh, word, amen, is actually a transliteration from a Hebrew word that's found all through the Psalms. Amen, which means, may it be so, or this is trustworthy, or this will come to pass. That's kind of the essence of the word. It's stating how true God's promises are. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. It says, here's the question. What does that little word, amen, mean? It means that this shall truly and surely be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I'm asking for. Let me read that one more time. Amen means this is truly going to happen. And that it is more true that God is listening to my prayer than I actually mean what I'm saying. 
That's a great promise. So you and I should end our prayers with amen, saying in our souls, God, this will come to pass. This is true. And I love it when we sing the Gloria Patri here on Sunday mornings. The amen, amen. It's the people of God shouting together, Lord, you are trustworthy. So as we close uh, the study in the Lord's Prayer, I hope you've been edified by this. I know I have, and I know our fellow teachers have. And I want to encourage you to pray this prayer in your heart more. On your way to work, in the shower, in the car, during an empty moment, when you're doing dishes. There are so many moments to take this prayer and just dig it into your soul. May you never say the Lord's Prayer so much that you cease to think deeply about it. But also, may you never learn so much about the Lord's Prayer that you cease to be wondered by its beautiful simplicity. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, for this chance to gather and worship your name. Lord, thank you for the simple prayer. Lord, may none of us ever feel like we have graduated from the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. Instead, I ask that it would be on our souls and in our hearts in the days and weeks to come. And may we finish our prayers boldly with saying, yours is the glory and the kingdom and the power forever. Amen.